Hello, and welcome to We Walk the Earth, an Autolab original podcast. I'm your host, Sergio Isauro. I'm an artist and creative purpose coach. I help people find alignment with their self within, their environment, their community, and their passions to live a purposeful and creative life. If you wish to book a free coaching session with me, go to the link in the show notes of this episode. We Walk the Earth explores the present, which flows towards a rooted, collective and transcendental future. As we find ourselves in constant flow and evolution, this podcast exists as a space for self-discovery, as we learn about other people, their paths and how they connect with our own. Today's guest, Sara Lopez, is a social entrepreneur creator, artist, writer, and culture worker that was raised on the Texas-Mexico border. After dedicating her studies to the humanities and several languages, sociology, and anthropology, and following a path in advertising, Sara built a career in photography that took her to live in the Middle East, Latin America, Europe, and Africa. She's the co-founder of The Jungle Journal, a coffee table book and travel journal containing photojournalistic content with interviews, photo essays, and scholarly articles. The Jungle Journal covers topics and stories concerning the environment, regional ecosystems, past and modern stories, as well as reflections. With the main goal of educating on the importance of land and cultural preservation, social justice, indigenous activism, decolonization, identity, spirituality, ecology, and sustainable tourism. Each journal immerses the readers into the regions, geographies, ecosystems, and stories of the inhabitants of the land, expanding the reader's perception of the world that surrounds them. Please, let's welcome to the show, Sara Lopez. This is We Walk the Earth. Thank you for joining us. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for this time. I'm really happy we get to do this. And a mutual friend connected us. And he first talked about your project, The Jungle Journal, which you started with your partner. And that was kind of like the excuse to connect. But then we had a really lovely conversation and we shared a lot. And you shared some texts with me. 
and to create some context for some topics you wanted to touch. And I'm just really happy that we get to do this and that we get to play a bit like the text mentioned. So thank you. Thank you, Sergio, for having me. And thank you to Pablo as well for connecting us. That was very sweet of him. And also just for social media as well, because I think that's how initially you found out about the Jungle Journal. Yeah. And I'm really looking forward to speaking with you today and expanding more on, on these texts you were talking about that I wanted to share and that I feel are a really great component to this discussion of the harmony of difference. Yeah, we said we were going to use that as the backbone for this conversation. You proposed that subject, that title, and I loved it. The harmony of difference. So I think, I mean, we're going to probably get in a little bit into the texts as we go, but I want to ask you why the harmony of difference and why those texts and how does that connect with where you are right now in your life? That is a very good question. So the harmony of difference was actually a song by Kamasi Washington that I had heard several years ago, maybe five years ago, when he released his album, Truth, I believe it was called. Or maybe the album was Harmony of Difference. And I remember the first time I heard that phrase, I was just like completely in love. I loved that thought, that concept, the idea of having diversity create this kind of like when you have a symphony, for example, with all these different instruments playing and it's like a crescendo, there is a harmony to all of that going on, all of these different instruments playing and everything. And that's also why I love an artist used this the first time I encountered the phrase. But then I realized how that also reflects in my personal life. I've always kind of pried myself and my American upbringing for a lot of the flaws that it has. One of the positive things I would say growing up here is having a diversity of friends, friends from like different places around the world or that have ancestry and backgrounds from different places around the world. And that has always added, I think, to my experience, my childhood, my growing up in general. I think there's such an advantage to having that and growing up around people that have such different cultures and perspectives. That is something I've always loved about my upbringing here in the States. And these texts specifically, I feel, are really reflections of my own internal journey, especially the texts by Gloria Ansaldúa. She also grew up on the border. She's also Mestiza, Chicana, Mexican-American. And a lot of her writings, when I first encountered them, actually during the pandemic, they really hit home for me. I hadn't read any texts like that that resonated with me so deeply because it really touched on my identity and how I perceived the world. So she has many, many texts that I resonate with. The ones that I chose for this podcast, I think can be like the crux and just like the centralizing idea of what she does and why she came here. And it really is talking on this concept of mestizaje being mixed and how that's used as a tool. Even though growing up, it can be psychologically distressing. 
But once you start unpacking a lot, it ends up being an aid in navigating the world. And it has been for me, understanding my identity better. It helps me relate with a lot of different types of people. And the other texts, the Maria Luganes, I believe, Mm -hmm. she was the Argentinian philosopher who wrote about the idea of playfulness and then traveling in other worlds. And I really loved that text because the concept of when she says traveling, she doesn't literally mean traveling. It's more of, um, oh, sorry, the worlds, traveling to different worlds. She doesn't literally mean that. What she means is being able to really listen to someone when they're sharing their truth or their story and being able to see things from their perspective and travel into their reality into their world. And I loved that that text and the power that that can have for the kind of current state we're in right now, this division that I feel very strongly here in the US, even within my social circles and speaking with people from kind of different parts of the spectrum when it comes to politics or just belief and life views. And then the other text that I'll probably mention at some point in this talk is All About Love by Bell Hooks. This book was recommended to me by someone that I had gone to school with in university. And I didn't start reading it until this year. And it has really just blown me away. And the fact as well that this is the author's last book before she died. Mm, She died, I believe, in during the pandemic at 69. So she was still relatively young, but I always love paying attention to when authors write their books because you can tell, you know, when someone's towards the end of their life, I personally perceive that to be almost like a collection of experiences that they're able to just speak on and understand from such a perspective of wisdom because they're in such a later part of their life that it's almost as if they're speaking from a space of knowing what truly matters. And I think that's why this book is so powerful to me as well, knowing that context. And then, of course, the texts within it are just very powerful. So those will be some of the essays and books I'll touch on throughout the conversation. Amazing. I read those. Two of them I read twice and then the others I just came through them this morning again for a little refresh. And I love that. Even like talking about different things, they connect in a place of like setting common grounds with what's around you as an individual, like with people, with the world, like setting common grounds and also being empathic to know that we are who we are because of what's around us. So I'm really, really curious of like you told me when these texts arrived in your life, but when did you start? playing with these ideas of being a mestiza and what does that meant for you in your growing up or in your life? I think you grew up in Texas, right? Yeah. Okay, like near the Mexican-US border. And I can't imagine how that can be for someone. I mean, I kind of can, but it's I'm so far away from it. Yeah, it's definitely an impactful experience growing up between two countries. So I did. I grew up on the Texas-Mexico border in the Rio Grande Valley. And I I really spent the majority of my time there in a town in the mid-valley. But I had a lot of family that lived more in the northern part of the region. And that place in itself, I feel, 
is kind of a microcosm of many places like it that are these just regions between two worlds and what kind, how people react based off of that. I think it was such an interesting upbringing. And at the same time, having ancestry, having family that came from the other side of that border added to the experience. I think because it's right on the American side, there's a lot of this desire and and not even maybe conscious, it's very subconscious desire to be American. And you you are in America, but it feels like at the same time you're not. Anyone that goes down there will notice that. Yeah. Because there are still a lot of like sentiments similar to Mexico, maybe the way business is done or the way I mean, just even the street vendors, you'll see like a guy with elote, like in Donna with his little stand. And you'll see that in different places throughout the valley. Like you feel Mexico, it comes through, the roots are so there. And I'm going to reference one of the readings right now. Gloria Saldua says that Texas in itself was colonized five times over. And I think we had discussed this the first time that I, that I met you. Well, in a way, colonized five times over. But in terms of who settled in this land, you first had the indigenous people and all of the indigenous people of Texas. And then after that, the Spanish arrived and it was claimed by Spain. And then after Spain, it was Mexico. And then after Mexico, the country of Texas. And then it was a part of the Confederacy, uh, the Southern United States, and then obviously became the U.S. So historically speaking, in my opinion, there's a lot of layers of identity and in a way has an identity crisis. Yeah, There hasn't yet been an integration of all of these historical contexts. So people want to run with just maybe the first layer of we're American or even we're Texan. There's a lot of Texan pride. Yeah, But I think a failure to recognize a lot of the Mexican roots is something that I think is a problem because Texas wouldn't be Texas without Mexico and without all of these unfortunately, like invasions, you could say that were rooted in colonialism have created the state and have created, honestly, Las Americas. But growing up on that border, even more so given the context of Texas, it's almost as if there's, I feel now looking back, more tension coming from the border, which can often look like and be compared to a scar. It's an identity crisis and a desire to I think from when looking back at my upbringing, it was a desire to be part of the dominant culture, which was America. I don't think people maybe think about it too much. And this was just part of my experience. I had to navigate this and see like later on when I did try and figure out my identity and make peace with that, I had to contemplate this, my experience on the border and and being Mestiza. And I think in so many ways, as I was saying, I was a part of that, wanting to be very American, wanting to embrace just really that part of me while the Mexican part of me got very neglected. And that, you know, was a lot of reasons. The social pressure, you're socialized to be more American if you want to survive in school. It's just kind of like the way you are. If you're pushing or if you're speaking about things that maybe aren't, you're going to get socialized in different circles. So that. I'm glad I experimented with that and have that part of me. Like I did grow up technically on this side of the border, but there was always such a deep longing to want to be a part of, of the Mexican culture as well. And for me growing up 
my parents did not speak to me in Spanish. They didn't speak to my brother in Spanish either. They would use it more to communicate between themselves if they didn't want us to understand them. <laughs> but we started picking up, kids are sponges. You could start picking up on certain things and they realized quickly that that wasn't going to work. But my abuelo, my dad's dad, he only really speaks Spanish. And so that created as a child a difficulty to connect with him. With my other abuelos, though, they spoke in English, so we were able to communicate with them. But that, I think, really, I realized that it hurt me that I didn't speak Spanish was probably my first trip into more, not just the border Mexico, but I took a trip to Monterrey when I was 14. Uh, we were visiting some friends and socializing with the kids there. It freaked me out because I couldn't communicate to them in Spanish. And that was so weird to me because I was like, everyone here is wondering why I don't speak Spanish. I have a Mexican last name. I look Mexican. Like this feels so weird. And that's when I first realized there was a split in me because I was like, this doesn't feel right. I want to speak this language, but yet I wasn't raised with it. So it wasn't until years later that I had to, I felt I had to explore this emptiness I felt from that. And I think where this all started to piece together was when I decided to go to Mexico for about six months between 2019 and 2020 before the pandemic. And during the pandemic, I was there for a bit. And that really was when all of these readings came to me it's during that time in the pandemic, the understanding more about myself in the place of where my family came from. And doing a lot of that decolonizing work, we hear this word a lot, decolonizing. And it's just basically a way to say, like, we're unlearning all of these patterns and ways in which a dominant culture has taught us what was superior, what was better. I think we're really just trying to figure out for ourselves what we want without the influence of a dominant culture, without the influence of a dominant even family or, or religion. It's just listening more into the soul. And I think that has been the journey that I have been on. And really that the pandemic took me on in so many ways was getting very clear about what needs to be healed and, and what can we work through? Because that one was really in my face, was my identity. And so being Nesthisa and how much that really did impact me my whole life. And the fact that it was kind of always at odds with each other, just myself. And Gloria Ansaldua talks about in her book, it's a poem, a struggle of borders. And she's like basically saying, because I, a mestiza, continually walk out of one culture and into another, because I'm in all cultures at the same time. Almas entre dos mundos, tres, cuatro, me zumba la cabeza con la contradictorio. Estoy norteada por todas las voces que me hablan simultáneamente. And that for me is literally what names it. It's this kind of, I'm in and out of myself. I have and carry not just the mestiza, even within Mexico, I feel like has that, this duality of being mixed race of like Spanish and indigenous. But then on top of that, being Mexican and American, it's like a lot of these conflicts within me. And I had to make peace with that and be able to integrate that back into the land that I grew up because now I've been in Texas longer than I have in the past, maybe six or five years. I've been traveling outside and 
coming back, I finally feel like I'm able to integrate a lot of these lessons and integrate more of what I, the piece that I felt I made outside. And coming back, I've been really putting into practice who I'm choosing to be in this life amidst the landscape that raised me. There's this, you mentioned emptiness, creating something out of this emptiness. And that reminded me of one of the texts, I think the one by Gloria, where she mentions the creation of a third consciousness or like a third entity that comes from the mixture of this. And I see it like in that emptiness that you felt, I guess that it's definitely like hard and more to experience it at a young age when we are like trying to be part of social groups and we want to be accepted and we want to, we look up to like people or media or something, experiencing that emptiness and then going through it, what it brings, that new consciousness. I see it as a kind of, like I said, I did not grow up in the border, but I'm also mestizo, but I, I don't have much information about my family history. Just like there's a little bit, but I feel like I'm in between. And from this space, I feel if we learn to integrate it, and it's a lifelong task, I think, but if we do learn slowly to integrate it, I see as we can kind of heal the differences that have been experienced and the separation from the past and just bring both sides to the table in this like new consciousness and yeah, like honor both and just create our own identity from that. Have you experienced something similar to that? Like I see your The Jungle Journal, this beautiful project that you and your partner have right now. And I see it as an ambassador project, you know, like joining different worlds and a healing project in a way. It's a magazine, but I see it as a healing project. Have you experienced anything ar like around that? Yeah. Thank you for saying that. That is a beautiful perception. And I too also think that the creation of this project was an answer to this healing process also that I was personally going through in reclaiming my own culture and reclaiming my roots because I found in travel such a beauty of appreciating differences. And to me, it really helped me get me to where I am now, was going to all these places around the world. And I'm so thankful I had the privilege to do that. But getting to appreciate and experience all of these cultures around the world led me on that journey to finally appreciate my own. And that was really, I feel in some ways, it brings you back to yourself in many ways. These journeys we go off and we set on thinking we'll find something outside of ourselves. I've found at least that it just took me back to myself and made me fall in love also with where I grew up and my culture. So it really is, I feel like the Jungle Journal is a testament to wanting that for others as well. I think what you were saying about this mixed consciousness and referencing Ansaldua, that to me, when she wrote that, it was in a response. It was almost the antithesis, not almost, it is the antithesis of this project of like Hitler and Nazi Germany for the Aryan race. It's the exact opposite. It's like, well, no, it's the mixed race, but not at the same time using the same tactics or language as Hitler and the Nazis, it's just stating like, for those that are, this is your power behind it, despite it being difficult. 
this new consciousness, this mixing of ideas and cultures and upbringings and ways of being within one person can create a new consciousness and can create new possibilities and healing for the world because those people have had to go in and, and do that on themselves for those that feel called. And I feel like the journal in itself is as well kind of traveling through different places around the world. It's reminding us of also our human family. And that is something I'm so passionate about in that I think it's important for us to be really proud of our roots and like really, I would say prideful, but in a way, I think there's a healthy amount of pride is super important where you come from and your family and, and your tribe and all of this. But it's also really important to remember the bigger picture too of how we're all making up this beautiful mosaic of humanity and each color and shade and hue is super important because also something that we often all too much forget is that we are all related and that we are all walking this planet as family, doing different things, but we are all so connected and we all really do come from this earth. And I feel we get very caught up in discourse and differences and in too much intellectualization that we forget the heart. Yeah, there's this phrase that I actually wrote down from Gloria Anseldua's text that I loved it and I think it really, really resonates with what we're discussing. It says, she has discovered she can't hold concepts or ideas in rigid boundaries. Rigidity means death. I just love that. This idea of fluidity and of opposing what you said, like opposing the Nazi ideology, this is an ideology of inclusivity, you know? And the mestizo, mestiza, is the ambassador of that inclusivity. And not only in the Mexican-American borders, everywhere, you know? Everywhere. Yeah, 100%. And for people that are, are also just mixed, maybe with more interior in the country, or any country for that matter. Yeah. And not just race, also ideologies, you know, like, you know, everything, everything, like no boundaries. Yes. I think living in that space of rigidity and dogma, which is what I see where a lot of people are living in those worlds, so to speak, that's where it, it ends because you're no longer open to hearing other people's perspectives. You're no longer open to hearing other people's stories and truths and what made them think that way. There's like a wall up and there's a lack of heart, really. I see just we're at this point too where so much obviously damage has been done that psychologically people are just over it and they just don't want to listen. And then on the other hand, people feeling like they're constantly the villain and don't want to also listen because they've maybe accepted their villain role or, or whatever in, in spaces with others. This is not good. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it other than... This is exactly why we are in a position of, I think, extremely divided times and loneliness. I think there's a lot of that that I sense. I don't know how it is in Mexico right now, but the climate in America feels very much that way. I don't know if it's reflected in the times or perhaps this period of adulthood where we get to choose what we believe, who we want in our lives, and how we choose to spend our time and mental energy as well, and therefore become what we believe. So I've definitely noticed that that's the territory a lot of people are swimming in. And it's scary because I think we have to remember, again, 
we are all part of this earth, this project earth, and we eventually are related down the line. And we've all separated and created our own cultures and, and visions for the world. And we, I think, just need to open up a little bit our minds again and our hearts to hearing each other and as to why we ended up so polarized. In so many ways, I feel like it transcends politics. So all of that, I think, just referencing, bringing it back to the quote you were sharing, like, it is death and rigidity is death in the sense of death being a state where there's no longer growth because you've died, like a plant that doesn't grow anymore. You've just decided to stay the same or if not stay the same, regress continuously. And that that is death in my perspective, when you're not growing and learning then that's a scary place to be, I think. But for myself, I really try my best to be open to what all different types of people have to say. That's also part of the project is shedding to light different perspectives and literally worldviews because it's different places around the world and hearing their story and hearing how they're impacted and, and understanding maybe a truth I thought to be so true expands a little bit and it's not so much the way I thought it was because I keep learning from so many different perspectives. If anything, it's returning to the heart and remembering how also disconnected we have been from our, I don't want to necessarily romanticize innocence, but in a way, this childlike nature, everything's become so serious as well. We are indoctrinated into seriousness as adults that we forget to play with our inner child. We forget to bring that out. And again, that's what I loved about Maria's essay on playfulness and world traveling was like, playfulness dismantles a bomb and a psychological bomb. I think if we incorporated more play into some of these difficult conversations as well, things could be a lot less heated and a lot less heavy while still speaking from the heart. There's a lot of that missing, I think, as well, the sense of play. And, and it is important. There's a time to be serious, but there's also, I think, a way of bridging the two. Yeah. And playfulness as the, like she said, like the attitude that makes us go through the process and not playfulness or play as, as she mentions, like as the Western man sees it, like as a competition exactly. full of rules, you know, like play that makes us go and like jump on rocks in a river and just have fun and be curious. And then at the end of it, not win or lose anything, you know, just exactly just the experience of it. And that's part of the, the decolonization that I was referencing earlier, this game of superiority and competition. I mean, they're connected. It's rewriting and redefining what play is because we have this idea of it to be equated with competition sometimes. And it's just, does not have to be that way. And I do in a literal sense and in a metaphorical sense, play is just so powerful. My personal experiences, it has helped me heal through my healing process, being playful about things, talking playfully about things with others, engaging and knowing like when to kind of break the tension. And perhaps the atmosphere in the room can be really dense and it just needs a little bit of some wind clearing the air <laughs> and that I think play can be a very useful tool as well. How do you and your partner Gabriel when you're traveling around the world 
to create this beautiful project that you have, like uh, the Jungle Journal, how do you level playfulness with seriousness and respect and being professional? And because you have to print magazines and distribute them and talk to authors and photographers and this and that. And But you also need to be curious and playful and really just explore the places and the people you're in contact with. So how do you get to this point of balance? I will say part of that has been what I've been working towards and learning how to do all these years since leaving the border and like going to university and then traveling the world. I've had to learn and really lean on that ability that came from being mestiza this kind of like being able to speak with people from all walks of life. Also something I didn't touch on, which I think is important is class in the society I grew up in. Class is such a, it's a heavy subject. I feel like, and people might not even realize it because it really does impact the way we see people. If we haven't released the idea that a hierarchy in class is needed in society because, or that proves your worth or that it's, um, again, like a competition. It takes a lot of unlearning viewing how we see things to really understand what's going on. And I feel like with class and where I grew up, I grew up in privilege. There was other people that grew up in privilege, but at the same time, you had the extreme opposite where I grew up. You have these places called colonias where a lot of people settle there if they have maybe just come from across the border. They're um, shanty houses, you could say, in like the definition of poverty in America. And oftentimes the government knows about them, but they don't really do anything about it, like pushing them out or necessarily giving them any aid or assistance with the infrastructure of the area. So it's a very forgotten part of society. And they're pretty much all along the border. So that exists at the same time as privilege does down there. If you are living in a city like you could say San Antonio, Houston, Dallas, or even, yeah, I would say more specifically in Texas, because in, in New York, you do see poverty all the time. I, I lived in New York for a period. You walk out of your apartment, you're going to see it. You're reminded of it on a daily basis with the homeless population there. But more when you're raising a kid, I feel like people really want to shelter their kids from this kind of this level or this ladder of the socioeconomic spectrum that out of fear and wanting to protect their kids, their kids have no context to reality and what a lot of the world experiences. You know, I wish we could live in a world where everyone was honestly well off and like didn't have to live on the street, had their basic needs met, but that is not the United States of America. And I feel like the positive side of growing up on the border was I was very aware of these things growing up. I saw them. I went to a school where I was with kids that I know a lot of them were on government assistance. It had a high teen pregnancy rate, a lot of dropouts. My class went from being like maybe 1,200 to just 500. So I very much saw firsthand growing up a lot of these disparities and like it was close to home, whether that was because of friends or just growing up and seeing it, that changed my perspective. And I, I'm so thankful for that because I always say if I had grown up somewhere else, I wouldn't 
be who I am. And I wouldn't have the perspective I have because of that. So I mentioned class just because that's an important topic to bring up in this conversation as well. I think another quote by Bell Hooks that I have always really loved that talks about this concept of once we're able to no longer attach privilege to differences is when we know we are we are advancing basically as a society. And at the moment, we're not there yet. There's a lot of still filters there that make us view people differently because of how much money they make or what. I feel that we are exiting though. I do feel that sense, especially coming from like Gen Z and just the newer generation. There is a general raising of consciousness that I perceive is happening, which I'm so grateful for because it's 2022 people. What are we doing thinking like that? (laughs) Worshiping concepts of whiteness and thinking that that is what you have to be. That's what you have to be like. That's what you're socialized. Again, brings me back to the concept of mestizaje of this is why it's so important that if you are to embrace that because you're introducing a new way of being and being proud of that without holding on to the popular notion of being just one thing or having to be just one thing and usually the dominant thing, whether that's American or the concept of whiteness, you're able to embrace, we're so multidimensional. We're able to embrace all these different parts of ourselves that I don't think we've ever been allowed or verbally told we could do. Otherwise, that's not what I think anyone's going to do for you. You have to do that for yourself. Yeah. And a little tangent here. How does your family respond to this search that you've been going through? That's such a good question. I think that they just perceive that I'm on another journey, which I am. Hmm. You it's mean just like the way I've chosen separate to... from their journey or something? Yeah, okay. exactly. Exactly. That I've chosen to do this work, see things the way I see them. It is, I think, several deviations away from the reality that they maybe perceive or or live in. And that's also been a process of accepting and loving that difference within my own family and knowing I don't want everyone to think like me. That's also awesome. Like we have different ways of perceiving our realities. And and I think that it's always with the people closest to us that that can be the challenging part. Then that's where the work is done. And I just realized that I didn't necessarily answer fully the question from earlier about how we go into spaces. And I just wanted to to link that back in because it's reminding me of being able to work with people that think so differently than you. I feel like it comes down to just first, a mutual respect. There's a, just a respect. There's not necessarily anything that I necessarily need from the other person. I just respect them, whether I'm going to work with them or not, when I'm just traveling to these spaces. And understanding really as well before arriving, as much as I can, just context, the historical context, what's happened in this land prior to me arriving, what has maybe affected these people to not trust outsiders. That always gives me a nice like understanding of a space. And then when I actually go in, when Gabriel and I go in, that's when we learn more about the locals, the history, more of the reality, trying to see the reality in its rawest form as possible from the people that live there instead of in a classroom or watching a lecture. I feel like That's another thing is we've really worshipped 
institutions and academia for a very long time. And I think it's time that, you know, we give voices to people that also have just a good amount of credentials as academics, but it's just lived life experiences and being the people that they're studying. And I think that's something we forget about when we glorify these kinds of institutions. Not saying they're bad. I went to university. It's just the way that we perceive like, oh, I'm going to read this based off of if someone has their PhD or MA on it versus if it's a man that's been you know, living on the land and herding his cattle, he also has something just as important to say. And he's chosen his trade. Yeah. It's wisdom versus knowledge, right? And realizing it's not the same. Yeah. And being open more to wisdom. I think the thing is, is that what I was saying, we've worshiped knowledge for so long that we need to balance these notions and no longer deem one superior to the other. And that's what closes us off from hearing other people. The way we perceive someone even by visual cues, that's why the decolonization process is very important. And also capitalism has made us view people in certain visual cues. And that kind of sends us messages back. How am I going to treat this person depending on how your society raised you? And that's why I think it's super important to step outside of that and for yourself see the humanity in everyone. I think that's the issue that we encounter a lot is we reduce people to, to something as superficial as like what they're wearing or who they work for or what even they're talking about, what they're going through. We forget that we're human, that we're all human. So that has been a really important source that I, I keep going to of respect and seeing the humanity in everyone when I approach this work. And when I know Gabriel, I see it in Gabriel approaches the work. And when things get maybe heated or there's a misunderstanding, it is really nice to have, I would say, a man and a woman doing this work together because it, it can dismantle, depending on the situation, it helps dismantle and deescalate things there is an advantage to working in that harmony of yin and yang because maybe one can come pull in when the other person can't and help really bring stability and peace to a situation. I think that just goes to show we need both. We need a little bit of both in finding that balance. Yeah, there's like this need of balance, I think, because both energies in a way have their purpose and also they connect. You know, like if we go back to these like non-rigidity, they also connect because also I bet that Gabriel at some point comes and he embodies feminine energy to do something. And then you like go and do something. I, I don't know, like it's beautiful to see how they like are quote unquote opposed, but also connect in a non-rigid way. You hit the nail on the head, how do we say in English? You really articulated well also what happens in our relationship, personal and business, like there is this fluidity where sometimes I'm embodying more, more like masculine. And when I say masculine, I mean like these concepts of order and organization and like Gabriel will be the one who's maybe more in the flow state of things. And we switch those roles depending on the situation. And that I think it does, like you were saying, it does show and exemplify, like we need a little bit of both. I mean, it's possible to be raised by your mom And just by maybe a single mother, a lot of people are raised just with single moms. But I think when I look at the way a child would be ideally raised, 
it would be with both teachings that a mother and father would bring. And that doesn't mean that a mother and father have to be present. It's just that balance is what I'm talking about. And we forget, I think sometimes we're thinking, no, we're only going to do things the way a father would do, or, oh, we're only going to do things a mother would do. This is more me speaking symbolically on society too. That's also when we get divided on the spectrum and we realize, oh, we need both. We do need structure as kids. Otherwise we're lost. We're going to like maybe hurt ourselves, go run into a into the river and find ourselves in a whirlpool because we didn't know that that part of the river was dangerous or we need to also learn how to just be present with nature and not feel like we have to be there to do something. We also can just be there to relax and to not do anything. And like, we forget that I think we need, we need a little bit of both, honestly, to find that harmony. (laughs) Yeah. It brings me back to the point of creating this third entity, no? Or as she and Saldua calls it, like the alien consciousness, no? Like the third consciousness that comes from these two energies. Yes. And also I think her identifying as a early in the 80s already as a queer person, she was already embodying that, like in so many ways from her all of her identities, gender to just her political identity, you could say. And I feel like that consciousness is what will be birthed out of this time of struggle, of chaos, of climate crisis, of ultimate division. That I think is an answer, one of the answers to progress and getting ourselves out of this situation. I feel like to fall into nihilism in the times we're in, again, that's like accepting death already. That's not growing. That's for me. For me, that's been the case. And it's easy to slip into that, I think, just with the current state of everything that's happening. But I think that's really where my hope and optimism comes in and is like, yes, everything that has happened has been shitty. And this is not an ideal situation, but we can shift it. And it starts within the individual. A lot of this relearning how we've been living in the world is like the first step and action will follow after that. Because we will be treating things differently. We will be treating each other differently. There's no longer a superiority of belief just because you believe it. And therefore, you're going to treat people who don't think that way differently. I see that on both sides. It's very evident. And one of the pitfalls of being human, too, is the mistakes that we make. And I go back to this all about love. I, again, love how this came out towards the end of her life and was arguably the last book that she wrote. But after years of being an intellectual as well, working in academic institutions and just being in that space and, and arriving to this is, this is what it all comes down to, all about love and really nurturing the sacredness of relationships because those two can really lead us to this going back like new ways of being. It's nurturing relationships and not in escaping Not completely, because I think we need a healthy dose of individualism, but we also have forgotten so much about community, at least here in this society. I know in other parts of the world, it's still quite strong. And maybe their work is to kind of lean into the individual uh, a little more, but also maintaining that community. But I feel that there is this sense of, of strong individualism that I just see modeled and a lack of community. And, and the thing is, is that community takes a lot of effort. It takes love. It takes being there when it gets hard, just like a relationship. And I feel people are very impatient and want to quit. 
there's a, a lot of language of using words, dismissive words like toxic or negative as well can be another one. But I, I think that this idea around cancel culture is also very scary because you're giving up on people, like dismissing them. And I feel like that's not what community is, no matter how big or small. And um, I understand perhaps the reasoning or the anger that comes from it. But I think that links it all back to what some of these writers were saying about incorporating the playfulness into these difficult conversations, incorporating the compassion and heart in it. But that takes a lot of inner work first. And I think something that I also had sent was a writing by Maria Papusas. Mm-hmm. Sí. She had written a letter to Ansaldua talking about her thoughts on progress. There was apparently like a really heated debate amongst feminists in this one conference that they had between like more white feminists and then the POC feminists, people of color feminists. And it just ended in a very bad situation. And she was responding kind of since that event had happened. How are we going to ever find a middle point? Even within ourselves, liberal intellectuals, we are divided. And she was basically saying to Gloria was, we also have to do the work in ourselves as people of color, as people of mixed race, to see what we have picked up on from these systems of patriarchy, from colonization, do our work as well. I think a lot of it we see in others, basically, is what she was saying, but we have to dismantle it in ourselves as well and put in that work. Because I think sometimes people get the idea that it's like a green card. If you're a person of color, oh, I don't have anything wrong with me. Like, But in reality, we are also impacted by all of this and we carry it as well. Yeah, like she says, we all breathe the same prejudices. Yes. We all grow up in this. So exactly, we also need to deconstruct. Yes. And also someone else had written, I think it was Mariela Gones, that she was raised in arrogance and that she was aware that she was the object of people also being raised in arrogance and the way people perceived her or she was perceiving others. And that bled from both her Argentinian background and into her American. And she speaks about how growing up having servants and being raised in Argentina with servants in the house. And even using the word servants in English, it sounds like it's very intense. It's like, yeah. you're here to serve me, yeah. you know? And she was speaking about that's She had picked it up first from her mother in her Argentinian background. And then it just exacerbated coming to America and living in, in this socialization and way of perceiving things. And I found that to be such an interesting insight because it is something perhaps that's not necessarily talked about a lot in Latin America, this idea of servitude that is mainly, from what I've perceived, more indigenous people or mestizo, mestiza people working for the wealthier class in this kind of sense of the caste system that still very much plays out in the culture and but is also a way of taking care of them. It also becomes family. It's a very touchy subject, I would say. And I'm even curious, I know I'm like switching it on you. Like, how was it for you growing up in a society? What are your thoughts about that in the society you grew up in, in Mexico? This idea, the class and these kinds of, this system of a very like 
just disparity between people of the ruling class versus the serving class in many ways. Yeah, I think from what I've seen in the U.S., in Europe and other countries, I think Mexico is a very special case because there is definitely, uh, I would say like there's trauma around colonization. And even though we carry it to this day, there is like this idea, very common idea that I think it's totally wrong about Mexico is not racist. Just because it's, we don't see a lot of people from all over the world. It's basically mostly white people from white descendants and people descending from the natives, indigenous people and mestizos, you know, in a big, 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 big percentage. And because it's already in the system that we are born and grew up in this and this is already like this, the idea of racism is like, a thing that happens in the US, for example, you know, like here it's not, people are starting to talk about it and it's more commonly talked about than known, but we are still like learning from this. And I think there is a, it's definitely in all of us, we all breathe the same prejudices. And sadly I see like it's a long process because there's so much division in classes and in races, there is so much division that I think it's a work that's going to take and that needs to be done with love and patience and understanding this idea of consciously creating a new identity and a new consciousness, I think is it's a struggle, but it's definitely waking up, I think. I also grew up privileged. It's funny, I talk about this with my girlfriend a lot, with my partner. If I go to the States, I'm Latino or POC, or if I'm in Europe, I'm definitely exotic. Here in Mexico, I'm white. So that also talks about one of the texts mentioned about the worlds, you know, like, and the different, I don't want to say personalities, but the different identities we take in different worlds. That for me has been impactful and has definitely shaped my identity in being rooted to one identity, which is like me, quote unquote, but also playing certain roles to be accepted in different places and not acting, but just following the rules in these different worlds. You know, it's very interesting and sometimes very confusing. <laughs> I can't agree more. <laughs> I experienced the exact same thing. And even for me, I I've actually been living in Europe almost the past two years. Up until recently, I came back to Texas. And even there, like it gets confusing for me because they're like, oh, it's because you're American. And then in other situations, oh, it's because you're Mexican. <laughs> like it just depends the situation and they'll already like categorize me in these identities and it changes. Because it's easy for people. It's easy for people. You know, to just put you in that box and then yes. don't have to really think about it or feel your experience. They just put you in the box and that's it. The categorization is a simple tool to just navigate this world, but it's not, it's not really healthy in the way that we do it. I think we have to cultivate a better relationship with categorization 
And yeah, I, I completely understand your experience in Europe because I, I could say the same thing, but except in the States, I'm Mexican. And then in Mexico, I'm a pocha. I see. <laughs> or I was, yeah. I was more than I am now yeah. because like I, one of the things I had been really wanting to do for so long was learn Spanish again. And I'm so grateful I was able to do that living in Spain, which was also an interesting trip, not learning it the Mexico Spanish, learning the Spain Spanish, because that's also another another thing to this whole journey is like, I didn't even mention the fact that also having a partner from Spain, I'm like Malinche. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Malinche, as the Mexicanos would say, and I'm holding a lot. And I feel like it's all very part of this particular stage I'm in in my life of understanding these layers of identity and how I choose to engage the world based on all of these layers and having a partner from Spain being Mexican American is an interesting experience because there's two sides that I realized I have to work on myself to not make myself feel I need to fall in either inferiority or superiority. And that's been a very interesting experience and then also coming back here and speaking Spanish with people from Mexico and they ask me like, where are you from? Like, you sound like you're from Chile or like Spain. <laughs> and I'm like, that's so weird. And I'm like, well, I'm Mexican, but let me explain this long <laughs> journey that took me back to my language. Like, <laughs> I love that though, because it just shows like, despite everything, despite not having it given to me because of institutional racism that my family experienced, and my DS, my parents, my abuelos, to not want to teach me the language, I found it myself. And there's something really special about coming back to the language because I wanted to, you know, it was a choice. And that was a really important part of my journey because language is culture. You don't have to be in the place or when you're in the land, but when you're speaking it, you're engaging with it still. Same thing with food. That's why I love food and how it also connects people. I was always inspired by Anthony Bourdain growing up. He was someone that I watched a lot. Are you familiar with Anthony Bourdain? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he inspired so many of us, but really for me, I, I saw that central theme throughout every episode was just how connected my heart expanded after every episode. It was just like a reminder of the connection and appreciation too through something as simple as food that can lead us there. It's like a direct straight one way, like food can just take you to getting to know another culture. And from that, the conversation and, and everything else, that is like a playful way you could say, maybe having those difficult conversations, sharing it over a plate of food with someone that's wanted to share their culture. That to me always stands out and was a huge inspiration for now. I think the life that I'm living in many ways as well. I want to go back. We started talking about other things, so I, I wanted to make space. But I want to go back to something that you said about accepting death and also about being able to look at difficulties and being present when there's like hard topics and difficulties. What is your and your family's relationship with death? Coming from a Mexican family, but growing up in the USA, Mexico has a very, very interesting relationship with death. And I think that 
you know, like it's very interesting because it's the one thing everyone has in common, but just in some places it's talked about and honored, like in beautiful ways, like artistic, creative ways. So what's your relationship with that was like a topic of conversation? I feel like death was not necessarily a topic of conversation until it needed to be. I think I had shared with you from our first call that my father passed when I was 21 years old. And that was really not necessarily my first brush with death. I had lost my grandmother when I was 18, my abuela. She died Christmas Eve of 2011. And before that was my grandfather when I was maybe seven or eight years old. I was very young, my first experience with death. And from what I saw around my family, we didn't necessarily carry that part of our culture into the American side. Their death wasn't necessarily, I wasn't raised with death being a very like a thing that we would even talk about. I remember seeing my mom when my grandfather died, even when I was seven years old. It was when I was seven because it was that September before I turned eight. I saw just how much sadness and pain she was in. I didn't necessarily have a close relationship with my grandfather. I was closer with my abuela. But I knew that this thing hurts people. This is a sad thing to see, to see someone go like this in the family. And just experiencing the emotions around everyone made me aware of that intensity of that moment and that experience. And then it wasn't until I think I lost my father that I really knew what that was like. I think that in America, or being raised more American in this sense, when it comes to themes and topics of identity, we almost think that we're going to live forever. There's not a reminder that, hey, you're going to die one day. <laughs> and people around you are too, people you love, and they're not always going to be with you on the journey. There's not any necessarily resources or tools to help you understand that and accept that. Because again, we want to protect our children. We want to protect, 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 protect. In the way of going in that lane of protection that leads to a lot of adults later on having problems because they don't know how to process death. Having mental, psychological, it just becomes buried in the body. These emotions, these feelings that I feel we're not taught how to process because our family wasn't taught. And I feel like death in general, it's taboo in this culture. Even I remember at a young age, and I don't at all hold much anything really, because no one knows what it's like, I think, to lose a parent at that young of an age. But I could tell that people did not know what to tell me. People didn't know what to do. And understandably, if you haven't passed through that, it's hard to know what to do. That's also a reflection of what family has taught and what society has taught. And that can be difficult because maybe you long for that support. You long for that, maybe even cultural understanding, but that was lacking. But the memory, I think the beauty of engaging with my family when I did, you keep your family member alive speaking about them. And that I always loved with my family, like my Mexican-American family on the border, like especially when I go visit my dad's side of the family, we'll always speak of him and 
I feel him. Like I feel his presence when we're speaking about him. And I, I feel in that sense, like his spirit is with us. It's being shared in that conversation. The very even sacredness of conversation and what that conjures as well, that goes to show you the power of, of the word. And I think in that sense, I feel that culturally without even being taught it. But now that since he's passed, now it's as if we're able to, again, create the sacredness around death. At least I'm able to give that to myself. And I will pass that down to, if I have kids as well, to understand that this is something we will all pass. And it's something very sacred and important to remember that because that's also a motivation for how we live our lives. Totally, totally. And that that really stands out to me the most because, like I said, <laughs> we're taught and raised and bred in a society where we think we have all the time in the world and we don't. We really don't. We don't. Every day is a blessing. And we really forget that. I think we would do things differently. We would treat people differently if we had a better and cultivated a better relationship with death. So that's a little bit about my American upbringing was that I felt it lacked. But who I am becoming now and what I'm choosing to carry on and embody is definitely like a sacredness with this process of human, the last process, the final process of of this human experience, it's very important that we build a new relationship with it and admit to ourselves that it is real and it will happen. And everything that goes with that, the bonding that can happen with the family members that remain and the community that can come from such grief is so beautiful and important that we also should honor. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that and opening up. Have you spent a day of the dead in Mexico? I have not. I have not spent Day of the Dead in Mexico. You're going to love it. I need to this year, <laughs> though. Honestly, I think I will do that. And I will say I have started to make an altar every Dia de los Muertos for my father and my abuelas. I started to do that two years ago when I was in Mexico. Nice. How do you feel your relationship with them has changed after you started that Oh, yeah, it changed, especially for my grandmothers. <laughs> I'm very connected to my grandmothers now since I think doing that. And I didn't realize it until a conversation I was having with my mom that December after Dia de los Muertos. We we're talking about my abuela Margarita, my dad's mom, and just kind of reminiscing on her. And I felt her like strongly in a way I had never felt her presence within me biologically you can say in my veins in my blood like I felt her in me and it was just funny because I was like wow and I felt it even in me I was like she was a powerful character in just the way that she chose to like live her life I mean she was a Catholic woman that divorced her husband in the 80s and that was already very brave for being Catholic no one really did that especially in the border it was very like you don't divorce your husband And she was a strong, very strong personality. And she died actually a year after my father died from heartbreak, honestly. And she has now crossed the other side. And along with my abuela that I had said passed in 2011, and then my father. So three very powerful figures, I think, that I have with me. And then the other abuela, that's a long story. Any family <laughs> that's listening to this knows exactly what I'm talking about. 
But she was also another strong character. And I feel her in me as well. And some like important family news was revealed after her passing that we had to process without her here. And I just very much love how now I know that I also carry their strength in me. And that knowing that that presence is so close to me is very special. And it makes me think about the movie Coco Mm -hmm. (laughs) at the end. Oh, it gets me every time. I didn't know that that was going to impact me so much the first time I watched it. At the end of the movie, when all the ancestors, the spiritus of the ancestors are just surrounding them, I was sobbed. I was crying so hard because I was like, this is what I feel is what I'm talking about when I'm describing my grandmother, or when I'm talking to my grandmother with my mom in the kitchen, or when I'm talking about my dad with my tío, they're right there. And that I love about the Mexican culture is knowing that that, how strong that is, and how that bond is not broken even after death. Yeah, definitely Mexico with people that have passed, but also in general, Mexico has a, still a very strong relationship with the unseen. I think, which I love it. I love, I totally love. Me too. (laughs) I do. I love it. I think just growing up hearing terms like, ah, I don't want to give you malojo. Like, let me touch your eyes or let me touch your head or like the huevo. My grandma would always do a prayer if I was sick around my aura to clear it with the huevo and then do a prayer, uh, bendicion, and then like crack it in, in the cup. And that was her connecting also with her ancestors and just like the role of ancestry in ceremony in Mexico for me is so special because it's very powerful when you're bringing in your loved ones who've passed or you're even just practicing the acts that your ancestors practice. That is restoring to the spirit. That is part of telling, you know, the people that took power away from your ancestors. Hey, if you do that, that's devil worship. Or hey, if you do that, that's not holy. Like that's the decolonization process is reclaiming these practices and being able to understand these concepts. Like you were saying, like having a relationship with the unseen, opening yourself back up to that after years of not letting yourself because of socialization or just the way that you were taught to think about how things work. I think that that is also something I love about my Mexican part of my family is this relationship with the mystical. And it is strong. It is strong. (laughs) (laughs) I bet. Yeah. Thank you, Sara. This has been a really nice conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking again to see in what ways we can collaborate and also getting uh, your partner in a recording soon, hopefully. Yeah, I would love that. And Gabriel would love that. And hopefully when you can do a couple more of these in Espanol, I think he would love to contribute. And just thank you for sharing all of this. I love how it ended on the note of ancestry. I think that that's what we're all a little bit spiritually deprived as we evolve more rapidly into technology. We have to bring with us. I feel it would benefit us if we bring with us those ideas, concepts, and acts from those that came before us to not forget where we come from, because that is what will contribute to this harmony when we all 
do it together and it will help us continue on. Thank you. That's a beautiful reminder, connecting with that wisdom. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much, Sara. Thank you, Sergio. That was Sara Lopez, co-founder of The Jungle Journal. If you wish to find out more of her work and get a copy of The Jungle Journal, please go to the links in the show notes of this episode. If you wish to book a free coaching session with me to get attuned with yourself and your creative purpose, please follow the link in the show notes of this episode. We Walk the Earth is a not a love original and is produced by me, Sergio Isaur. The music in this episode was produced by Tejedor. Editing by Miguel Andrade. Mixing by Samuel Peñalba. If you like this podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify. This small action will help us keep going, creating and igniting curiosity in more people. This is We Walk the Earth. Thank you for listening. Until next time.